You are Locked On Packers, your daily Green Bay Packers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We said four quarters, all gas, no break. You guys did that today. Hell of a job. R-E-L-A-S. Relax. We're going to be okay. It is time. It is time. I feel like we can run the table. We're going to do it. You are Locked On Packers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am Peter Bukowski, and I cover the Packers for SB Nation and Packer Report. I cover the NFL around the internet, and you can follow me on Twitter at Peter underscore Bukowski. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Locked On Packers. You can like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts. You will find Locked On Packers, the number one Packers podcast on the internet. And the show, for fans who know what happened, they want to know why and how. A full recap of the 2020 Packers draft on the show today. If you didn't get a chance to check out our Friday Periscope, we did talk about day two there. We are going to rehash some of that stuff on the show today, but we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way. I think that was aimed more specifically at talking about, okay, what happened on day two? Who's A.J. Dillon? Who's Josiah DeGuara? And what do they do for this team in 2020? Before we get into the questions about was this draft good or bad, I want to talk about how it happened or or maybe why it happened. That is, after all, the raison d'etre of this podcast, the how and the why, not the what. You know who was picked. You know they didn't take a receiver in this draft. So why did that happen? What was the thinking there? And we're going to hear more as we go through some of these picks and as we do our rookie orientation series. I've already talked to Gary Anderson, Jordan Love's head coach from last season at Utah State, about his experience there. You're going to hear about that. And you're going to hear from Brian Gutekinst about what they think and Matt LaFleur about what the Packers view about these players are. That is going to be a part of our rookie orientation series. What I think is important here, again, before we dive into the good, the bad, the value, all that stuff, is to understand the context of what is happening with the team. There were reports around the weekend about the Packers wanting to run the ball more about them wanting to be a more run-the-ball-play-defense type team. And as was the case all offseason, fans had said, look at the 49ers game. The Packers' run defense needs to be fixed. And what it turns out might be true is that when we look at the 49ers game, what we needed to be saying was, that is the blueprint for the Packers. Run the ball, play really good defense, and have a quarterback make enough plays to beat the opponent. Now, it doesn't have to be eight, obviously. You don't want a quarterback that you feel like you have to protect. Jimmy Garoppolo in the Super Bowl when he needed to make plays late couldn't. It was what ultimately prevented them from winning. Aaron Rodgers does not overthrow Emmanuel Sanders in that moment. We've seen Rodgers make those plays. That is potentially the difference between this team and that one. Now, that 49ers team is more talented right now. And that's the problem a lot of fans have with what happened in this draft. But this draft was about 
philosophy. It was about Matt LaFleur building a team the way he wants it to look. Now, I don't think that means they're going to be run first or run heavy. The offense is based on the run game. It's predicated on the outside zone. Then you get to the play action. Everything is based on that. You look at the picks on day two, A.J. Dillon, Josiah DeGuara. The intention there is be able to be multiple, to be big, but be able to throw the ball. Those guys have juice in the passing game. A.J. Dillon didn't get a lot of catches, but the opportunities he did get, he showed explosiveness with them. He's not just some plotting power back. And when I watched him on tape, I felt like Boston College should have given him more opportunities in the passing game. He is a decent route runner. Natural hands. I watched him at the combine and thought, why didn't this guy get more reps? I watched him on tape and I went, why did this guy not get more reps in the passing game? The idea is be able to play out of any personnel and have the defense not know, are you going to run or are you going to pass? The 49ers last year were one of the only teams in football that ran it more than they threw it. But one of the reasons for that is that defense was so good, so extraordinary in its execution, in its ability to score, much in the way the Bears were two years ago. They created so many positive opportunities for their offense that the the only thing the 49ers had to do was make a couple plays and then run the ball. They could spend most of the game running the ball because they were ahead and because they knew their defense could take care of it. But go back to 2018. Not the case. Now, obviously, they were a worse team in 2018. But you look at the Rams. The Rams were really good in 2018. They went to the Super Bowl in 2018. They still threw the ball almost 60% of the time. So just because Matt LaFleur says, I want to be big, I want to be run-centric, doesn't mean run heavy. I don't think the Packers are saying, let's run the ball 30 times, have Aaron Rodgers throw it 15 to 20 and call it good. Now, it, it is the case that they probably want him to be more efficient. They want the play-action game to be better, and it can be. But this draft was about taking that vision and finding players who can help them execute it. You get a running back. A.J. Dillon is an improvement over Jamal Williams. And and Jamal Williams is a quality back, but Dillon is explosive. He can be a home run hitter. Maybe not 60 yards, but he can rip off 15, 20-yard chunks. And in the NFL, when he's got more space, I mean, he faced loaded boxes almost 50% of the time last year at Boston College, basically double the next guy. With more space in an Aaron Rodgers offense, he could be dynamic. Who's going to want to tackle him in December? That's the identity this team wants to have. And when you say, okay, the Packers didn't draft any receivers. Well, if they want to play out of two receiver sets most of the time, you know, this is not the Mike McCarthy offense where they're in 11 personnel, 75% of snaps. Last year, it was just a little over 50%. It could be even less this year. So if you're playing two receivers most of the time and one of those receivers is Devontae Adams, well, then it matters less who your third receiver is. So that is a philosophical reflection of who they want to be. When you say, okay, they didn't take any receivers. Well, if you're going to play them less 
and you think you can design an offense where you're spreading the ball around, where you're scheming guys open, where you're going to scheme Jay Sternberger open, where you're going to use play action to get Josiah DeGuara running free through his own coverage or matched up on a linebacker that he's more athletic than, then it's less important to get that receiver. I'm not justifying what they did. I'm telling you that's the philosophy that that their strategy is demonstrating. It is a reflection of an ideology. The idea to play big. And, and Warren Sharp over at Sharp Football Stats has been saying this for years. The most effective way to throw the ball is out of big personnel because it puts teams in a bind defensively. It puts the Packers in a bind defensively, or at least it has traditionally. You put B.J. Goodson on the field with Blake Martinez, they can't cover you and me. So most teams have that problem. Most teams are not the 49ers and have Fred Werner and Dre Greenlaw and Quan Alexander. It's worth noting that in the lead-up to the draft, there were reports that the 49ers were trying to move on from money, including Quan Alexander. Part of that is they eventually got the, the deal done for Trent Williams. They may have to give him a new contract, so they have to get off some money, theoretically, But that's what this draft was about. All the offensive linemen on day three. That's where the best picks for me were. John Runyon Jr., love him. I mean, they they took two other interior offensive linemen, which is something that Ted Thompson never used to do. But Brian Gutekunst found a pretty good one last year. So you need offensive linemen that can execute your scheme. You need backs and big people like DeGuara, guys who can play fullback, tight end, H-back, can split out wide, play in the slot, do a little bit of everything. I mean, I mentioned this on Twitter. If the Patriots had drafted DeGuara, and by the way, they drafted two tight ends in the third round. One, they jumped in front of Green Bay to draft, and another, they took six picks later. If they'd taken DeGuara and everyone thought, oh, he's going to be the fullback, there would be all of this praise or at least you know jokes made about how Bill Belichick is going to turn DeGuara into the next James Devlin and turn him into a weapon, and it would be this cool thing. Even if it was Shanahan, that's what would happen. Now, Matt LaFleur is not Kyle Shanahan, at least not yet. And so he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. And because there were no receivers, Brian Gutekunst is not going to get the benefit of the doubt. And whether that's fair or unfair, it is, again, a reflection of a philosophical direction, one that coach and GM executed together. It's pretty clear Matt LaFleur loved this draft class. Matt LaFleur's fingerprints are all over this draft class. He loved Jordan Love. Brian Gutekinds tried to save him from it because Matt LaFleur has to go in that locker room and coach Aaron Rodgers. But Matt LaFleur loved Jordan Love. Matt LaFleur loved A.J. Dillon. And Matt LaFleur super loved Josiah DeGuara. I mean, it was was clear. and And he, you know, Jacob Restendorf, friend of the podcast, said that you know, Matt LaFleur raved about Elton Jenkins last year, just lit up whenever he talked about him. We got that vibe a little bit from LaFleur talking about DeGuara. You can tell he's already excited about finding ways to scheme a guy like this up. It's worth noting, Matt LaFleur was in Washington with Chris Cooley, one of the great H-backs of his generation, one of the last H-backs who's really been an impact player. Matt LaFleur was in Tennessee with Delaney Walker, who's not a true H-back, but can be used as much more than a tight end, especially as a blocker. A little bit on the shorter side, can play split out, can play in line, can play fullback. Matt LaFleur understands the value of those kinds of players, and and he wanted them. You can say, oh, they could have gotten him in the fifth round. Yeah, sure, maybe. But the point was, 
Matt LaFleur loved him. He wanted him because he is a reflection of the coach's desire of how to play, of a philosophical approach to this team. I know I've used those words a bunch, and at this point they sound like corporate buzzwords, but that's what this was. So whether the picks were good or bad, we can say for sure that this was about what Matt LaFleur wants this football team to look like. And for whatever criticism that you can lay at the feet of Brian Gutekinds to Matt LaFleur for this draft, that cohesion is important because it wasn't always what we saw with Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy. They were often at philosophical odds. Ted Thompson wanted to build through the draft. He wanted to draft and develop team. He wanted to constantly churn the roster. Mike McCarthy and Dom Capers wanted veterans. Brian Gutekinds has a way of, of putting together a roster. He's put together a very good roster. This is a very good football team. And this draft, last year, it looked like a draft that was for Mike Patton. Really, the first two drafts were for Mike Patton. They go defense, first three picks in 2018. They go defense, two of the first three in 2019. And then in 2020, it's offense for three straight. This draft was for Matt LaFleur. And Matt LaFleur got the players that he wanted, who he thinks can make an impact on this team. And if you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do it than at the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where you can make all of that happen and so much more. The Army is a team of millions of individuals working together to take the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? And text ALPL to 462-769 to find out. That's ALPL to 462-769 to find out. So the Sunday after the NFL draft is grade day. And there is a split of takes about grade day. Some people think they're useful. Some people think they're totally useless. And I actually think... That when grading drafts, grading the player is usually a fool's errand because the difference in one receiver to the next is small. One fullback to the next, okay, maybe not fullbacks. One running back to the next is small. And the difference between one pick to the next is very small. Over time, the odds of one player hitting versus another is essentially a coin flip if you just go by draft slot. Okay, so worrying too much about the players, I think, can get you into trouble. Evaluating the process, though, matters. So if you're a team that uses high draft capital on positions that are easily replaceable and you're not doing it with high-level talents, that is when you can evaluate the process. The player, even if they're good, is not going to bring value significantly above another player and what they're likely to bring at a later draft spot. So A.J. Dillon, really good football player, really liked A.J. Dillon on tape. And if he had been given the opportunities at Boston College that some of the other players in the draft got in terms of catching the ball, if he could have been as much a part of the passing game as, as say, J.K. Dobbins or DeAndre Swift... I think he'd have been 15, 20 spots higher for me on my board. Maybe maybe more just because of the size, the explosiveness, and the speed. That combination is rare. But he's a running back. So even if he is Eddie Lacy, which is my comp for him, prime Eddie Lacy, and he's more explosive than Eddie Lacy, 
you can get a back that good in the third round, in the fourth round, in the fifth round. The Packers have one of those guys. Now, in the, you you could say, okay, fifth round pick, they may, might not hit, might not, you know, might might hit, might not. Okay, but running back is the most replaceable position in the NFL. Using a second round pick on a non-elite talent, a non-elite prospect, you know, Jonathan Taylor, okay, that's a different thing. Jonathan Taylor is a better prospect than A.J. Dillon. How much better? Look, to me, it was like two rounds of value better. And they went in the same round. To me, that is a misallocation of resources. It's bad value. Even if A.J. Dillon is a good player. And I think A.J. Dillon is a good player. That is the theme of this draft, especially on day two. Because I liked day one. Jordan Love. We're going to talk plenty about Jordan Love all through this process. Jordan Love is a really good football player. And yes, it's a risk. And I I went through a lot of those risks when we talked on our QB show that a lot of people are suddenly podcast listeners that never seemed to be podcast listeners before found some clips of me talking about Jordan Love. And we're going to talk about all of those things because I, I will not shy away from the negative things that I said about Jordan Love. I will not because I stand by them. I still believe them. But I really like the football player. And if he's good, really none of, none of this other stuff matters. And I really like what they did on day three. It's, it's day two where you go, did, did the value match here? You get a Josiah DeGuara, an H-back, even if he's a tight end. They just took a tight end. So is he tight end two? Is he a fullback? Is he Kyle Juszczyk in terms of role? And Matt LaFleur said... They're going to use him a lot like the 49ers use Kyle Juszczyk. A lot like the Ravens used Kyle Juszczyk. Okay, great. The best version of that guy, is he worth a third-round pick? Is if, if you could just have Kyle Juszczyk for a third-round pick, is that worth it? Man, I don't know. And you're probably not going to get the best version of that guy. So he either needs to be more than that. He needs to be more like Chris Cooley or Delaney Walker or the value of that pick just isn't there. Now, day three, I have nothing bad to say about day three. I like Kamal Martin. I think he's an athletic linebacker, an ascending player, and when he's healthy, he looks like the kind of guy that, you know, is a developmental linebacker. He's a fifth-round linebacker. Former captain, I like the traits. He can play in coverage. He can shoot gaps. He can blitz. I like it. Is he going to come in and be a long-term starter? Who knows? But there's talent there. Love John Runyon Jr. I mean, if you are a longtime listener of this show, every mock draft I did had John Runyon in it. Every single one. He's an outstanding athlete. He's going to play inside. Play, it could be center. could be a guard. Ross Uglum over at Packer Report, also friend of the podcast, he compared him to J.C. Treader. Someone who played tackle in college but is going to play interior and could be a center in the NFL. John Runyon Jr. could be the heir apparent to Corey Lindsley. I love Runyon and what he brings. Tough, physical, athletic. He, he could have easily been a fourth or a fifth round pick. And he goes in the sixth. You know, I, I didn't know as much about Jake Hansen and Simon Stepaniak, but I will say that one of the writers over at Roto World, who who is big in analytics, that was actually his his bag. 
before he he started working in the media. The analytics really like those two guys. I haven't gotten a chance to watch them yet. Obviously, that is something I will do in the coming days and weeks. Sorry I wasn't out here grinding tape on, on a Sunday trying to, trying to get in all that Jake Hansen tape, but obviously I will do that and we will talk more about them. But they are guys who fit the system, who understand and are experienced players, understand how to play, will not pretend to have any idea about Vernon Scott outside of knowing that he was Dane Brugler's 61st safety in this draft. And then in the seventh, they get Jonathan Garvin, a guy who I thought was going to be a mid-round pick, a fourth-round pick, fifth-round pick. That's really good value. He can be outside linebacker four for them with some upside. I really like Stanford Samuels, undrafted free agent from Florida State, former five-star recruit. Looked like he was going to be a mid-round pick, according to the executives Bob McGinn talked to. He was a, a third-round, fourth-round kind of guy and then ran 4.65 at Indy. He blamed dead legs, combine. There was all sorts of wonky results at the combine. Said he was running four fives in in training. So he's someone that could come in and 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 maybe contribute. But the the specter that hangs over all of this is they didn't get a receiver. And that is the fundamental problem that I think a lot of fans have with this draft. And if it were me, I'm just taking guys that have potential impact value, even if I don't think they're going to be day one starters. That was what Brian Gutekind said. I understand the premise that he put together. Look, we didn't think any guy on day three was going to, or, or day two was going to come in and, and compete with the guys we had. I, that's probably true. That's understandable. And yet, they picked players at positions that are not impactful. If you pick a receiver in the second or in the third, even if they're not great prospects, even if their grade is a little lower, we talk about this all the time, it's about the player who can impact your roster the most. In a draft class this deep at receiver, how do you not take a receiver? If for no other reason than to just churn the bottom of your roster. I mean, the Eagles took John Hightower, Jalen Rager, Quez Watkins, and traded for Marquise Goodwin. Now, they had some major question marks at receiver. They don't have a true number one. It's really Zach Ertz, but it's not like they've got nothing there. They aggressively attacked that position. Green Bay chose not to. Why? Even all the stuff I said in the, in the first block about wanting to play two receivers. There, was, there were talented guys in this draft. I, I understand, believe, and, and am okay with Brian Gutekind saying, look, we like the develop. If you're going to pick a developmental player, take a developmental player who you think can outperform the developmental players already on your roster. So if you can't take anyone that you think is better than EQ, better than MVS, better than Alan Lazard, then don't take them. I, I guess I get that. But what about Jake Kumro? What about Darius Shepard? What about Reggie Bagleton? These are guys on the roster. Just add talent. It's more impactful. Now, I'm sure there are going to be fans who say, well, but they got a linebacker. I'd rather have the linebacker than the fifth-round receiver who's probably not going to beat out MVS for a roster spot. I don't I don't have a, a counter to that. Now, maybe they could have moved up in the second. Maybe they could have gotten someone in the third. Look, I, could, I would have taken Brian Edwards. There were guys there to take. But once you got past that top group, we talked about this pre-draft. Once you get outside the top 50, those high-impact receivers were going to go. And even still, it took the most 
absurd run on receivers we've seen in NFL draft history for one of the top guys not to fall to Green Bay. And he, the last guy of that high-impact group went painfully close to where Green Bay was picking. Now, would I have traded up to get you know over there to get Denzel Mims instead of A.J. Dillon? Yeah, I would have. Are there players I would have taken in the third round instead of Josiah DeGuara at receiver? Yeah, there are. That's This is where the value question comes in. Even if you think that those guys are not going to beat out EQ and MBS and Lazard, if they, if they come in and if they have to play because you're going to have injuries, they're going to be more impactful for your roster than DeGuara is. So the, the TLDR of all of this is, particularly with day two, they got two really good football players, guys who I think Matt LaFleur is really excited about and I think fans are going to really like, by the way. I think they're really likable guys. I think they're likable players. And in December and January, they're going to help the Packers win football games. There were just other guys there that would have been more impactful long-term to this team. And that's why I don't like it. I said this on Twitter. If the day two had been Josh Jones and Akeem Davis-Gaither, or it had been Jeremy Chin and you know whoever else, even if it's not a receiver, I think fans would have been more okay with it. But to take a running back and an H-back with those picks makes it tough. And that's where we can grade the process. The process wasn't good, even if these players turn out to be useful because of what the opportunity cost was. You took them at replaceable positions. And in, this, in the case of DeGuara, non-high impact positions, when there were other players at other positions, receiver or otherwise, that they could have taken. Before we get out of here, I just want to spend a second and just say anyone who's saying that the Packers are worse after this draft are enwrapped in cynicism and just want to be critical. The team is better than it was going into the draft. Even if you just want to be as unkind to these guys as you can possibly be, Jordan Love is a better backup quarterback than Tim Boyle. A.J. Dillon is a better second running back than Jamal Williams. And Joseph DeGuara is a better, what are we going to say, fourth tight end than Evan Bayless. Okay. That means that the talent, even if it's just on the margins, is better. Now, are they better positioned in the NFC than they were going into the draft? No. Other teams improved more. Minnesota had a great draft. That makes Green Bay's path to the playoffs more difficult. Philly had a great draft. The 49ers got some impact players. Now, are the 49ers as good as they were last year? We're going to have to see. It's going to require Kinlaw and Ayuk to both be really good as rookies, which is unlikely. I don't this did the Saints have a great draft? I didn't I didn't think so. The Cowboys did. We don't really know where they stand and they don't have any defensive backs. So we we overestimate the impact of rookies in all of this. Always, we always over overestimate the impact of rookies. And the rookies that we often think are going to make the biggest impact are, are not the guys who do. It is the guys that we rarely think. It's, you know, a group of players that we were not sure would, would ever be good, much less be good as rookies. So it is a reminder that even though they didn't get a receiver, you don't lose points from this roster for opportunity costs. 
it's not like the difference in player quality from A.J. Dillon to Josh Jones is now subtracted from the Packers because it's who they could have taken. It doesn't work like that. The Packers added good football players to this team. And even outside of the Jordan Love discussion, they got better. Now, how much better? We're going to have to see. How much it matters this year is going to be based on how much they get from the 2018 class, the 2019 class. That's where the improvement on this roster was always going to come because, and I say this all the time, most rookies are bad. So it needs to come from 2018 and 2019. The reason Green Bay wanted to get a receiver early was that guy has a better chance of helping you in 2020. They couldn't get that guy. And instead they got Jordan Love. Okay. After that, they felt like there wasn't a guy who can help them this year. So roll with their developmental receivers. In a vacuum, I don't have a problem with that. But then to go out and pick replaceable players, that's a problem. But, but it doesn't make you worse. DeGuara is a, a quality player, even if he's just a core special teams player and an occasional bit part on offense. A.J. Dellen, even if he's not Eddie Lacy 2.0, is a really solid second running back and is going to be impossible to tackle at Lambeau in December. That makes you better. And if it makes it easier for Matt LaFleur to play the way that Matt LaFleur wants to play, and he can now call a better game and be more efficient offensively and get into play-action shot plays that he, that he couldn't get to last year because he had to make up for the flaws of Jimmy Graham or Danny Vitale, or Jamal Williams, frankly, then that can make your team better too. And that's just something that we don't talk about very often. So again, they're not worse. They're not worse. That's the moral of the story. How much better are they? I think that's why fans are struggling with this draft is because they just didn't get as as much improved as we felt like they could have. All right, we're going to start our rookie orientation series in earnest. We're going to start it tomorrow. Jordan Love, Gary Anderson on the show to talk about Jordan Love. We'll also hear from Brian Gutekinds to Matt LaFleur about their thoughts on Jordan Love, who he is, what he's been through, and what he brings to this team. Don't worry, we are going to have a lot of Jordan Love content over the course of this offseason to let you get to know Jordan Love. I wrote a column about it for Acme Packing Company. I highly suggest you go check that out. It's pinned to my profile, and we'll get to those discussions tomorrow and then further down the line. Uh, we won't necessarily go in order as we can get these scheduled. We'll get them out and, and um, get them to you as fast as we can. Best way to make sure you don't miss any of them is to subscribe to the podcast. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever. Wherever you find podcasts, you will find Locked on Packers. Follow me on Twitter, Peter underscore Bukowski. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Locked on Packers. Like us on Facebook. And anytime you want to hit us up on the Locked on Packers fan hotline, We are going to dedicate a show later in the week, maybe multiple shows, to your questions because there are a ton of them. Hit me up on the Locked on Packers fan hotline, 920-341-3775 to stay Locked on Packers.